Wonderful. If you have a Bible, please open up to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. If you want to use a pew Bible, that'll be on page 1097. 1097. One of the things I love about the Bible is that the Bible is completely honest. You know, if you're trying to start a movement in the first century or any other century for that matter, normally you would leave out more of the perceived unpleasant points of that movement's origin. However, the Bible is completely honest about the conflicts in the early church. Conflict is defined as a noun, as a serious disagreement or argument, typically a protracted one. As a verb, it means to be incompatible or at variance or a clash. I think we're all familiar with conflict in one way or another. Historians say that the largest, most destructive conflict in human history was actually World War Two, And there are a lot of different opinions about the word conflict or when it comes to conflict. Some people seem to like conflict. Some people seem to run quickly from it. But all of us experience conflict in one way or another almost every day, either directly or indirectly. Sometimes it's not us in conflict, but we are experiencing the conflicts that are around us. I've told people before, I remember Emily and I's first conflict as a married couple. Uh, it was not long after we were married. I got home before she did. I was going to do my good husbandly duty. And I thought, you know, I love my wife. I'm going to bless her by doing the laundry. <laughs> what an idiot. Um, so my, there were two things wrong with that. Number one, my version of doing the laundry was you just put as much of these clothes in this washer as possible. And I was like, man, I'm amazed how much this will hold. We'll just keep cramming it in there. And then, you know, then part of that too was, um, you know, I didn't realize there are certain garments that go with certain garments and certain things do not need to be washed together. But uh, the big mistake was, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking we have this, why hang up clothes when you have a perfectly good dryer? Just dry everything. It's be done quickly. So Emily walks in. I've got this pile of clothes in front of me, and I've got piles like of dish towels that I washed with shirts, a white shirt and the red shirt, and you know, and all this together. And I'm folding clothes. Emily walks in. She's like, "What are you doing?" I was like, "I love you, honey. I'm just doing the laundry for you." She's like, "No, you didn't." I was like, yes, of course I did, you know, because this is what husbands do for their wives, right? And she pulled out her favorite jeans. I was like, isn't that amazing? They're washed and they're dried in the dryer, you know? And it's like, wow, honey, it looks like you lost some weight and shrunk at the same time. (laughs) Again, idiot, right? And and the, the phrase was, when my mom washed my blue jeans, she always put them on the drying rack. And then I said it. He did what came out. I thought, I'm doing all this stuff for her. And what came out of my mouth was, well, I'm not your mother. (laughs) I'll just end it there. Uh, (laughs) We survived the conflict, but we're all familiar with conflict. Sometimes we have this idea that the church is a place where there is no conflict, right? Or that true churches, they always live in harmony. They never have conflict. Or if there is conflict, then someone is demonically possessed, someone is absolutely wrong, you know, and something needs to be done. 
But conflict is, is a part of life. And what we see is that it's a part of the early church. We see it in the book of Acts. And so I want us to go to Acts 15. I want to ask four questions, attempt to answer them from the text. Question one, what was the conflict? Question two, how did the early church handle the conflict? Question three, what does this mean for us today? And then I want to end with, why is this story in the Bible? So let's go Acts 15, start in verse one, says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Now notice it says, the, came down from Judea. Right now, they're in Antioch of Syria. If you know anything about geography, Syria is up, not right, not down. But geographically, everything went up toward Jerusalem. So when it says down from Judea, even though they're going north, it's geographically down. And notice that these people were teaching the brothers. They were not just holding an opinion. They were not wrestling with a question. They were actively teaching the church something. Here was that something. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, that is a huge, huge statement. Anytime we make a statement about what gets someone in or keeps someone from being a part of the saving work of Jesus, being a part of the universal family of God, that's a huge statement. Verse two says, after Paul and Barnabas, they disagreed, had no small dissension and debate with them. So here's the conflict taking place. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem, geographically south, up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Verse three, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia, Gentile country, and Samaria. Samaritans were half Jews, half Gentile describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. This has been going on since Acts 10. Notice what happened. It says this and this brought great joy to all the brothers or brothers and sisters, the church. So people are, are ecstatic that all of a sudden what Jesus has done, now Gentiles are being converted. And as other Gentiles are hearing this, they're thinking this is amazing. Now we have this Jewish savior who has come not just to save the Jews, but the whole world. Verse four, it says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Verse five, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. All of a sudden, this got a little more complex. What we see in verse one is that some people were teaching that you have to be circumcised according to the customs of Moses. Now what we see in verse five is not only do they have to be circumcised, but we must order them to keep the law of Moses. So it's circumcision and law at this point. Now this was a major theological controversy in the early church because it got to the core question of what it meant to be a Christian. And that question is still for us today and it is what is required for a person to be saved? And again, this is not only a major question for the early church, it's a major question for us. What does it mean for a person to legitimately become a follower of Christ and therefore a part of God's redemptive people on the planet. There are two ways you can answer this question. We see both in Acts 15. First is to say <clears throat> that to be a Christian requires faith in Jesus plus 
some additional requirement or requirements. In this case, in verse one, it was circumcision, according to the law of Moses, or in verse five, it was circumcision and keeping the law of Moses. So the first option is to say, yes, you have to put your faith in Jesus plus some other additional requirement. The second option is to say, to be a Christian requires faith in Jesus alone. And how we answer this question is absolutely crucial. How you answer this question is absolutely crucial. Is it Jesus only or is it Jesus plus something? And I think we have to ask ourselves this. Do we believe that being a Christian means Jesus only? Or do we believe that the first step is to follow Jesus and then there are additional requirements to be a part of God's family? Now listen, here is a question about the universal church. Okay? They're not talking about what it means to be a lo- belong to a local congregation that has a common beliefs and practices. That's what a local church is. A local church has a unique thumbprint both within the universal body of Christ but also in the community in which they live. And we come together and there are things that we hold in common both in what we believe and what we practice. That's what every local church does and should do. The question here is what does it mean to be a part of the universal body of Christ which we say we believe in the Apostles' Creed. Sometimes it's called the Catholic Church. The Catholic meaning the universal body of Christ. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Again, verse five says, but some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and their comment was, it is necessary, not optional, necessary to be circ- to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. So this is the problem. Some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, and that's not a contradiction, Paul was a Pharisee, they honestly believe They honestly believed that it was necessary to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses after and even after putting your faith in Christ. Now, here's the thing. They're sincere in this. They're not trying to twist this, I don't think. I don't think they're trying to lead people astray. They actually have a sincere held belief. But here's the thing about being sincere. You and I know you can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Even when you feel it deep down inside but this is the conflict. So how did the early church work through the conflict? Verse six, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Verse seven, after, uh, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. But notice verse six and seven here. The first thing we see is the church came together. It says they gathered together. They did not let the conflict separate them. So many times that's what happens when we are in conflict with someone or a group of people. The last thing we want to do is be around those people. But there was an issue in the church and this brought the church together to do something. And that something that they were doing was they were to consider the matter. They were to ethon, that's the Greek word, the matter. And that word consider means to understand, to learn, to resolve the issue. And again, notice the conflict brought them together for deep reasoning about a crucial issue. Now, not every issue that arises in the church is gonna be a crucial issue, right? I mean, we've all been around people who make every little issue into a really big issue, right? Oh, I'm I'm the only one that's been around those people, (laughs) right? Don't look at them. But not every issue is a big issue, but this was a question about salvation, which meant this issue was paramount. And when they came together, verse seven says they debated. Beautiful word. The meaning of that word, our English word debated, means to search and searching for information through questioning. 
They were not quarreling. They were not fighting. See, when you and I think of debate, we think of a presidential debate that's just a nonstop fight back and forth. That, that's not what they were doing. No, they were searching for information through questioning. They were asking deep questions of God and of each other in this moment, trying to find an answer. Peter stood up, verse seven, and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. He meaning the early days of the church. That by my mouth, the Gentiles should, here's God's choice, hear the word of the gospel and believe. Meaning they have access to be a part of God's family. Verse eight, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Verse nine, and he made no distinction between us and them. Peter says, there is no us in them in the kingdom. Having cleansed their hearts by faith, Peter tells them that God used him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, that God worked in the Gentiles' life so that they could believe. Here he's referring to Acts chapter 10 in the household of Cornelius. Then the Holy Spirit bore witness to them, was poured out on the Gentiles just as it was the Jewish believers. Peter's conclusion then was that there's no distinction made between Jew and Gentile and the sign that there was no distinction made between Jew and Gentile is that not only Jews but also the Gentiles have had their hearts cleansed by faith, he says at the end of verse nine. Meaning the evidence that God has worked in them is that their testimony is about Jesus, that he has cleansed their hearts by faith in Jesus. Peter says, we've heard it. And so what Peter obviously here is challenging this line of questioning that it's Jesus plus something else. Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? What a great phrase. By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. And then he says in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved, notice the future tense of that, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Right here, Peter quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16, where it says, you, shouldn't, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What does it mean, though, to put God to the test? To put God to the test means to know what God requires and what God desires, but to make a choice to go another way. To put God to the test is to know what God requires and desires, but to make a choice to go another way. And we say things like, well, doesn't God, you know, God's will is just gonna happen, it's gonna happen kind of thing. We have to understand when it comes to God's will and this idea of putting God to the test, that God has a predetermined sovereign will. There are things that are simply going to happen. Nobody can stop it. And God has a prescribed, revealed will. That's the will of his command. When God gives you a command, it's so that it can be followed, right? And it's our job to choose whether or not we're going to follow that. To give you an example, it was a part of God's prescribed sovereign will that the 10 commandments were gonna be the highest law in Israel. Like no one could stop that. That was going to happen. But once revealed, then the people had to choose whether or not I'm going to follow God's will. You see, it was God's will that Jesus Christ was going to come into human history at a particular point. That's Galatians 4.4. 4. At just the right time, God sent his son, right? 
That was, no one was gonna stop that. Jesus was gonna come at that point. God's predetermined sovereign will. Once revealed, the question is, are we gonna follow him? Do you see that? And so to put God to the test, here's how it works. When it comes to God's predetermined sovereign will, nobody can stop it. When it comes to the will of his command, his revealed will to us, the question is, will we follow it or will we put God to the test? That's the question. So again, to put God to the test is to know what God requires and desires of us. That's why he gives a command, but to choose to go another way. Peter points out, this is what the father, their fathers did, Jewish fathers, and this is also what they have done before they knew Christ. And he's saying, he's reiterating again, there is no salvation through the law. And here's, he's also reminding them that this, if you're gonna go the law route, it only results in downfall and even spiritual depression because no one can carry the weight of saving themselves. That's why he says, verse 11, we believe. He's saying, this is what we said we believe. We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they, the Gentiles, will. It's all about grace. Peter says, and right here, Peter brings them back to the core of the gospel message that we are saved through the grace of Jesus and everybody who will be saved will be saved through the grace of Jesus and silence fell on the crowd, verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent. And then they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Peter stands up, I saw it, Acts 10. Now Barnabas and Paul stand up, we saw it, Acts 13, 14. They say, we've seen him work in and among the Gentiles as well. After finishing, verse 13, after, fin after they finished speaking, James, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, not James, the brother of John that was killed earlier. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, here he's talking about Peter. Notice he uses his Jewish name. He uses his Jewish name because this is a Jewish matter. Using his Jewish influence here, Simeon, Peter, has revealed how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. That's a very important phrase because right there, James is quoting scripture. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written, verse 16, after this, I will return and rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, the house of David that has fallen right before the exile, David's line destroyed. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, here it is, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Right here, James quotes a portion of Amos 9, 11, and 12, Isaiah 43, verse 7. Both passages tell of the future day when restoration among God's people will happen, but it includes the nations, not just one ethnic group known as the Jewish people. You say, how many nations does, it, does this include? Jesus wants all of them, every single one of them. And what we see in the testimony of scripture is that at the end of history, Israel and the nations will be brought together, unified in Jesus. Remember how Acts started, Acts 1.8. Go, be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Why the ends of the earth? That's where the nations are, and God wants them. 
And so James concludes and summarizes his thoughts, verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. That phrase, turn to God, that is repentance language, metanoia, means to turn to him. Verse 20, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from things that have been strangled and from blood. And right there, we just went, what? What is all that? But notice verse 21, for, so that, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every, synagogue, every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, right here, James makes a missional judgment or a missional statement with these four things. First, he says that we should not trouble the Gentiles who are turning to God, meaning that we should not add something to the grace of God. He's not gonna do that, but number two, he says, let's write to them about four missionally crucial action steps that they can take, they being the Gentiles. And then he lays them out there. Abstain from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, things that are strangled, and things and from blood. These four things actually go together. But let's look at them. Number one, he says, abstain from things polluted by idols. And again, the next three are connected. Here, he's calling on the Gentiles to completely leave their pagan past and live as Christians among Jews. And the reason why I say among Jews is because verse 21, he says, let's tell them to abstain from these things for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. That's a way of saying there are Jews in every city and we want to reach the Jews. So he says, He's calling them to leave their pagan past, to live as Christians among Jews so that Gentiles now can reach the Jews for the gospel. That's crazy. Do you realize where we've come from in this study? A Jewish Messiah standing on the mountain, great commission, go make disciples of all nations, all pan and ethne, all ethnic groups. He's talking to all Jews. And then by the time we get here to Acts 15, we see that Gentiles are being converted and now the church in Jerusalem is asking the Gentiles to reach Jews. <laughs> we have to remember too, when it comes to idol worship, typically it was idol worship and things that went on there, that was the source of meat in the Roman Empire. Meat was actually quite uncommon unless you were very wealthy. But to buy meat in the market meant that many times it was associated with idols and with idol worship. That's where the butcher shops were. It was cut up, sacrificed to a Roman god and then sold to the people. So the Gentiles, so the Gentiles would not be a hindrance to the spreading of the gospel to the Jews, James suggests they step away from anything connected with the idols of Rome, which also involve the other three things, sexual immorality. Sounds like a no-brainer, but not for a Gentile who comes out of centuries of pagan practices. There's a lot we could say here, I'll just put it this way. Pagan worship was often associated with and involved sexual immorality. You can fill in the gap there. Abstain from things being strangled and from blood. Again, it has to do with the meat polluted by idols and the way it was processed and the way it was consumed by pagan cultures. So when we hear these four things, they're not just four random things. James and the church is wanting now Gentile believers to reach out and reach 
the Jews for the gospel. So the whole point of these being mentioned is first, the new Gentile believers are living in a new situation, brand new, by living among both believing and unbelieving Jews, so it's missional. Second, these action steps make a clear break for a new Gentile convert to Christianity from their pagan past. But lastly, I think we have to be clear that the goal of the Jerusalem Council here is to point to the fact that salvation is only found in Jesus. So they are in no way saying that these action steps are salvific for them. They are wanting them to reach their Gentile brothers and sisters or families and also the Jews as well. So they write a letter, verse 22 seem good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas and Silas leading uh, men among the brothers. And here's the letter. Brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are Gentiles in Antioch and Syria, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us, meaning Christians, Jewish Christians, and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction. He says, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord. Notice that. The church comes into a place of unity. To choose men, to send them to you uh, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, whom themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, meaning they are going to testify, to be a testimony to this. Verse 28, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, what an amazing phrase, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you may, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, notice you will do well, farewell. Notice, it didn't say you will be saved. It's you will do well, meaning you will live on mission well and not offend our Jewish brothers and sisters who we're trying to win with the gospel. That's how they work through it. And what does this mean for us today? I'll give you four things real quick. Number one is they came together around issues of utmost importance. They did not bury their head in the sand. They did not just meet on a trivial matter, they came around these issues. They came together, they talked without fighting to inquire of God and to each other to get an answer. They didn't run from conflict. If you run from conflict, you're gonna spend your life on the run, even in the church. Number two, they recognized where God was moving and they sought to not hinder that work. You see, they're writing this letter to the church in Antioch not because they're just nice people. They wanted to know what God was up to and they wanted to join in. There's a phrase that gets used a lot in the world today and it's a phrase of, I don't wanna be on the wrong side of human history. Listen, when you are focused on the eternal, you don't have to worry about your testimony in history. The question is, what is God doing and how can I be a part of that? How can I join in with that? But number three, they confirmed what they were seeing with scripture. Instead of relying on their own feelings and opinions, and people will say to me, Chris, the Bible, it's a, it's a really old book. And I go, yes, that's what makes it absolutely beautiful. And I have not found a subject that, I, that deals with the core of humanity and the human heart that God has not instructed us on. That's why we see them here in Jerusalem going back to Deuteronomy, going back to Amos, going back to Isaiah, asking the question, what has God said? 
And then number four, they made missional decisions, not practical decisions. See, mission is costly. Every missional action step that we engage in requires sacrifice. And listen, the church could have been pragmatic. They said, hey, you know, they could have just said, hey, let's just keep it among the Jews. Let's keep it in one culture. Let's just keep it simple, keep it safe. But they heard and saw the heart of God for all people. So they made a missional decision, not a self-centered decision. Last question I ask is why is this in the Bible? And I actually don't think the primary reason is because of ways to tell the church how to handle conflict. I think that's there, and I think that's important, but I think it's secondary to the fact that once again, what we're seeing is the most important thing is that we understand we are saved by grace through Jesus. It's by grace. It's not by being good enough. It's not Jesus plus something. It's the grace of God in our life. And what brought these people together and all the wrestling and the conflict that we see in the first century, what it is for us is a calling and reminder to us is that at the end of the day, we are saved by grace. And that is beautiful because we cannot save ourselves. And this is where I would end and what I would say to you. If you're here today and you've been trying to make yourself good enough, as long as you try to be good enough to earn God's love and his saving work, here's the thing. Hang with me for a second. Here's the thing. One of two things are gonna happen. Either number one, you're gonna be remotely successful in being a good person and your heart's gonna fill with pride. Or number two, you're gonna fail time after time again and you are gonna be spiritually depressed. It's only when we come to that place where we understand that God's grace is for us and that's what allows us to have this relationship. That I can't earn it, I don't deserve it, but God is so good, his love is so great and he says, I want you to come. Don't clean yourself up to come to me. Come to me and let me clean you up. That's the whole point. That's the main point. And as long as we, as a church, make sure we keep that the main point, we will see miracle after miracle after miracle as God works in people's lives and works in ours. So may we be people who keep the gospel front and center through every single conflict and may that gospel always be a gospel of grace. It's not cheap, it's not him just kind of sliding things under the rug, it's God radically stepping into our life and touching our lives and bringing healing and hope that we cannot find anywhere else. It's messy and it's beautiful, amen? Father, we thank you for messy, beautiful lives changed by grace. So Lord, as we sit here right now in this room, as we're watching online, Lord, I pray that you would meet us in this moment. For those of us who have been trying to be good enough, to do good enough, Lord, would you help us to stop striving?
For those of us who've given up on God because we don't think we could ever measure up, Lord, would you lift us up in this moment? Would you help us see the beauty of Jesus, the grace that he has for us? Lord, it is through your will that grace has been offered to us, not just in general, but again this morning. And Lord, as it has been revealed, may we respond and not put you to the test. But may we embrace your grace once again because you're the only hope we have. But you're the only hope we need. I pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name.